to Acts chapter 5. You'll see an, an Old Testament reading listed in your bulletin. I encourage you to read that this afternoon. It's a wonderful little text where you hear the Lord God tell his people Israel that when he brought them out of Egypt, he didn't immediately start telling them about sacrifices and the shedding of blood at the temple or the tabernacle. The first thing he told them was to hear my voice and obey. Our reading is Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 27 through 32. We took in most of this second half of Acts 5 last Lord's Day. We're tracking back just a little bit and focusing on the words of the apostles in these verses. Let us pray again. Our most holy God, we bow before you, beggars one and all. We have nothing to trade on for what we are about to ask, Lord. We come in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the treasure, a treasure not earned by us but given to us. And so, Lord, we on his name, ask for the gift of understanding, the illuminating, the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would attend to our hearing, our believing, and our doing, that we would not be like a man who looks at his reflection in the mirror and turns away and forgets what he saw, that we would look into your word and that it would be stamped, imprinted, sewn upon our heart and conscience, and that for the glory of your Son, we would be reformed evermore, a little by little, under your quiet ministry of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 27 through verse 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is God's word. Beloved, if a great king from a faraway country invaded our own country next Sunday, and this invading king had the best trained army that ever walked the earth, and this invading king had the most powerful weapons ever seen upon the earth, and this invading king had the best protection and defenses ever used on earth. And besides all that, 
this invading king had a spectacular reputation. He was known for giving to those he conquered the most extravagant and helpful gifts an invader has ever given to those who have been defeated. If that king invaded our country next Sunday, would you be surprised if thousands and thousands of your countrymen immediately surrender to him? I would not be surprised because such a great king is going to be the new king anyway. And he is going to make everyone's life better. It would be no surprise if thousands and thousands of people dropped all their puny weapons and pledged their allegiance to this invading king. It would be no surprise if many bowed and declared obedience to him. Now, what would be surprising are those who refuse to obey him, those who choose a terrible death instead of the abundant life this king is going to give and distribute. That would be surprising, those who refuse to obey him, almost as if they were blind to who he really was and what he was really doing. What would even be more surprising, though, would be those who surrender to this king, take all his extravagant gifts, but then decide not to obey him. Instead, they go back to obeying the rules of the old defeated regime, the old defeated kingdom, the old defeated princes. That would be really surprising. Now, the story I've just told you is a real story. It is the story of Jesus Christ. He is the invading king. On the Sunday before he was crucified, known as Palm Sunday today, Jesus said these words, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John 12, 31. Beloved, that's an invasion. Jesus is the great invader. He is the greatly loved conqueror who draws all people to himself. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He has taken the burden of our sin away. He has won our hearts through his deathless love and his indwelling spirit. As the unrivaled king of heaven and earth, Jesus marched to the cross. He marched into the grave. He marched out of the grave three days later and into the sky where he now sits on the throne of heaven from where he will, of course, come again. But for now, understand, King Jesus lavishes gifts on those he is conquering. Which gifts? The very gifts mentioned in our text this morning. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, verse 31, and the Holy Spirit, verse 32. And how have these gifts changed those who have been conquered. 
Well, by these gifts, they obey their king. That's what our text says. They have forsaken their allegiance to the old defeated regime, the flesh, the world, and the devil, and they obey King Jesus now because now they have the gifts needed to obey him. Before they didn't. Beloved, I set all of this before you this morning in this way because of three key words in our passage. The word obey in verse 29, the word leader in verse 31, and the word obey again at the end of verse 32. Each of these words is an unusual word in the New Testament. Not unusual in the English language, but unusual in the original Greek language, which is the language, of course, behind the English here. The Greek word for obey in verse 29 and verse 32 is a rare word used only four times in the New Testament, and two of them are right here in our passage. It is a word that literally means to obey a prince. The usual word for obey throughout the New Testament literally means to hear as one under authority. But this word, this rare word appearing twice in our text, specifically means that a prince is near, that a prince is present. It refers to homage and obedience in his presence. It's a well-chosen word because of that other word I mentioned. Verse 31, leader. When he speaks of Christ's resurrection and ascension there, Peter says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. That word leader is archegos in the Greek, which literally should be translated prince. The King James Version translates it literally as prince instead of leader. What we are to see from the Spirit's choice of these three words is that the relationship between us and Jesus Christ is being pressed to the front and the center of the actions of these apostles. He is our Savior, but he is also our royal authority because he has saved us. He is our Prince, which makes us what? It makes you royal subjects. He is master, you are servant. He shows who he is by invading, by conquering, by giving. You show who you are by receiving, by surrendering, by obeying. Now, all throughout your life, your relationship to your prince and savior is going to be tested. If you think about what are you going to do the next 50 years, well, one thing you can write on that list and be confident of, tested by the Lord. All your life long, you are going to be tested just like Peter and the apostles are being tested in today's passage. Remember, just a few hours earlier than this, they were in jail, locked up for preaching about Christ in the middle of the temple. Here they are out of jail by the, well, we'll get to that. 
Here they are out of jail and being tested again. Tested by what? By the authority of earthly men. And this is the test. Will they obey the voice of their heavenly prince or will they obey the voice of earthly men? Will they take the easy way through life, always doing what men want them to do? Or will they take the difficult way through life, the way of the cross, the way Christ himself has already taken, the way of obedience? How do you want to make your way through this life? Following after Christ or following after men? If you follow after men, all of life will be about keeping the cross off your back. If you follow after Christ, all of your life will be about conforming yourself to the one who took the cross by taking up your own. Beloved, you are going to be tested again and again with this same test because your heavenly prince wants you to be tested. It was Christ who wanted Peter and the apostles tested. It was he from heaven who sent an angel to break them out of jail. Why? Was it so they could avoid getting tested? No. So they could be tested publicly. That's why this happened. Your prince wants you tested because as you are tested, as you pass the test using his gifts, your passing the test becomes an earthly witness to his heavenly authority. Beloved, listen, men will not see that you have a different master than them unless you obey that master right before their eyes. Unless you are given opportunities by your heavenly prince to show men that you will give up the whole world out of your love for your heavenly master. And besides that, you will have, you will not have, you will not have the joy in your master unless you obey him. Look at verse 41. Right after they have been beaten, spent part of the night in prison, are despised by all the top men of the city of Jerusalem. Right after all of that, verse 41 says they are rejoicing. Without obedience to your heavenly prince, you will not have the joy of your master in your life. The reason they are so filled with joy is because they have experienced in their lives the being conformed to the pattern of their master's life. They have suffered for his name, and it fills them with joy because he said that all who belong to him will suffer like him. Please listen. You will always be annoyed by Jesus. You will always be cold towards Jesus. And maybe you are even right now as he's preaching to you. I'm not Jesus, of course, but he is preaching to you through his minister. Maybe you are cold towards him even now, and you will always be annoyed by it until you begin to obey him. For that is the use of faith. You're not saved by your obedience. 
You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But the faith that saves always bursts forth like a miracle fig tree, like a miracle grapevine, like a miracle fruit tree with obedience. It's the only faith the Spirit gives to men. And only by this obedience will you have joy in your master. Your faith will then clearly see that he is worth more to you than the praise of men. You know, it's the first thing we should all do in your obedience if you have not done so yet. Let me say it so there's no confusion. The first obedience you owe to God is to obey the gospel. It's very interesting that this is the exact expression we find in both Paul in his letter to the Second Thessalonians and Peter in his first letter. They both use the identical expression, obey the gospel. Your first obedience is to confess that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners and that there is none other, and that the Savior saves utterly by his obedience, by his death, by his resurrection. It is the first obedience all men owe to God. Even Jesus himself said it when he said, you want to do the works of God? Well, these are the works of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent. I want to make sure, as we look at verse 29 and the things that surround it, that we are getting the principle of obedience straight as it is found in our text this morning. We are an Orthodox Presbyterian church. You've already learned by now that doesn't mean that we have a lot of fires burning and candles melting. What it does mean is that we want our teaching to come straight. Orthodox means straight teaching, like orthodontics means, well, something straight behind your smile, straight teeth. We want to get the principle of obedience that the apostles are standing upon straight out of this scripture. So let me state it first. Here it is. It's really a three-part principle of obedience. Number one, whenever earthly authorities command you to do what God forbids, you must obey God rather than man. Number two, Whenever earthly authorities forbid you to do what God commands, you must obey God rather than man. So examples. If an earthly authority commands you to confess that other gods are also God, just like the Romans did, they demanded that of the Christians in the first two and a half centuries of the church. If you are commanded to confess that other gods are also God, you must disobey and confess the Holy Trinity alone is God. That's an example for the first part of the principle. Whenever earthly authorities command you to do what God forbids, you must obey God rather than man. Here's an example of the second. If an earthly authority forbids you to teach that a certain behavior is sinful, You must disobey and teach clearly what God's word teaches. That's an example of the second part of the principle of obedience, which is whenever earthly authorities forbid you to do what God commands, you must obey God rather than man. 
Now, there is one more part, one more piece to this principle of obedience, and it is this. Our obedience to, he- to our heavenly prince will often include obedience to, e- to earthly authorities. Earthly authority is not always opposed to the authority of Christ. Don't fall into that trap of anarchy. Our obedience to our heavenly prince will often include obedience to earthly authorities. In fact, the authority of Christ is very, is very often reaching into your life through earthly authorities. When earthly authorities forbid you to drive 90 miles per hour to church on Sunday morning, they are not opposing Christ. They are serving Christ. When earthly authorities command you to wear a seatbelt, they are not opposing Christ. They are serving Christ. When earthly authorities call you to worship at 10 a.m. instead of 8 a.m., they are not opposing Christ. They are serving Christ. How do we know they are serving Christ? Because none of these things are forbidden or required by Scripture. Scripture is the word of our king. The scriptures are the constitution of his kingdom. Behaviors which he does not speak to openly or by good and necessary consequence does not speak to openly are behaviors he leaves to earthly authorities to regulate under his hidden providences and his sovereign will. So here's the point. Much of our obedient service to our master will appear in our obedience to earthly authorities. Much of it. But there will be times when he wants to test us. There will be times when our heavenly prince and God test us by requiring us to disobey man in order to obey God. I was tested myself many times, but I remember one case in particular, and some of you have heard it. 30 years ago in the business world as a new Christian, I underwent this same test. In my early 20s, I worked for a mid-sized company that used lying and deceit to succeed against its competitors. And it was okay, we thought, because everybody in our industry was doing the same thing. It was more easy to see how we would lose out if we didn't do it than it was easy to see how wrong it was. I was doing it. But as I grew in my faith, I realized I could not obey Christ and obey my boss on this matter. I remember the day I told my boss behind a closed door in my boss's office that I could not do this deceitful thing any longer. My boss was angry. My boss was protesting. My boss was mocking. I was told to go tell somebody else to do it. And then I accidentally really lit the fire when I said I cannot go tell somebody else to do what I refuse to do. I was quickly told to get out of my boss's office. I was not fired. And surprisingly, a few years later, when I quit that job to go to seminary, 
my boss stood up at a luncheon and said the kindest things. It was an extraordinary turn of events. It doesn't always end that way. Ask Jesus of Nazareth. But it was the Lord's test. And beloved, listen to me. The child of God welcomes this test. The servants of King Jesus welcome these providentially arranged tests. You may be under a test right now and just realized it. Because I was under one for a couple years and didn't realize it. We welcome them just like David welcomed it. He said in Psalm 26, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Do you see what the test does? It makes you look farther. It makes you look deeper. It makes you see clearer. It makes Christ larger to you. Not because he wasn't always large and always glorious. No, he becomes larger because we have not opened our eyes as wide as we could. Because we have been slow to obey. Yes, even us children of God. So he comes to us through these providences. Boy, did he come in our text. He got them out of jail to put them right on the hot seat where they would say, we must obey God and not man. Have you ever had to say that to somebody? Have you ever had to say that when somebody said, hey, let's go profane the Sabbath together? No, we must obey God and not man. Hey, let's just take that. Nobody will know. We must obey God and not man. Every intersection between the defeated kingdom of Satan and the resurrected kingdom of Christ, every time they intersect, those are glorious, providentially arranged moments for the children of God to bear witness to who their true Lord is. Now, I have a few points of application of our text, and it will help us do a little bit more exposition of it. Application number one, Acts 5.29 is not permission to practice private interpretations. Beloved, the apostles in 529 and Peter, they knew they must obey God and keep speaking of Jesus. Not only because everything Jesus had told them before his death, but because in just hours before this text, the angel came and spoke and told them to get back to the temple and to teach in this name, the name of Christ. So because they are weak men, they were perhaps tempted to look upon their release from jail as an opportunity to go to a theme park. But the angel bound them by the word of the heavenly prince. He is the Lord's angel, right? He didn't leave it to their private interpretation to discern what God was telling them to do. So Acts 5.29 is no permission to practice our private interpretations. We are bound to the word of our heavenly prince, whether it comes to us through a minister of the gospel, to the, through a church confession, 
It all must be founded upon the word of the prince, the scriptures. So if somebody comes to us, or perhaps we ourselves say, well, I think God wants me to live my Christian faith outside of an organized church. I think that's what God's calling me to do. That is a private interpretation, divorced from the scripture, divorced from elders, divorced from the church itself, making it up, and then stamping God on it. Do you know what that is? That's a violation of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God wants me to do blank is often how that commandment is violated. Somebody might say, I think God wants me to leave my marriage. Or I think God wants me to give all my money to my new convertible fund. All sorts of things that fall under this misuse of a verse like this. Well, God wants me to do it. I have to obey God and not man. Yeah, those men are telling me not to. Beloved, you know that you are drifting away into private interpretation when you are not consulting elders and confessions of the church where the scriptures have been studied carefully for centuries under the rule of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Second point of application, and all of these begin with Acts 5.29. By the way, I'm not trying to start a new denomination by doing this. Acts 5.29 will attract people who love courage more than Christ. In our text, Acts chapter 5, when when Gamaliel speaks, he tells the council about two men who started their own movements, Judas the Galilean, and Thutis, verse 36 and verse 37. These two men started their own movements. They were zealots. They were the kind of men who delighted in anarchy, delighted in themselves being princes and not servants of Jesus Christ. When the church, under God's providence and will, is pushed into such courage as we see in our text, it will always attract fleshly men, unbelieving men, who love courage more than they love Christ. And they will infiltrate churches because they are driven by this boldness. How do we tell that they are false men of courage? Well, look at what these men of courage did, these real men. What did they say even as they refused to obey men? In verse 30 and 31 and 32, these real men of courage offered Jesus Christ to the very men who they were severely disappointing by not obeying them. Peter says it right there in verse 31. One, that he has been exalted to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. False men of courage will not offer Christ to other men. They will promote something other than him 
even if it's just their own courage and their own name. Third point of application. Acts 5.29 is one of the best Christian apologetics that we can give to the world. Do not miss what the Lord has done in this little encounter. He has deliberately taken out of jail his apostles to direct them in a narrow path where they are right back in a public confrontation with the authorities of this earth by which they will testify that they will obey their heavenly prince. The Lord delights in this kind of public apologetic where our obedience reveals so much more often than our learning. Not to in any way discount learning, but listen. Our public commitment to obedience will often surpass all of our learning in argumentation. Because when we declare obedience to Christ, we are immediately showing them that our whole being even at risk to our name and reputation and body, perhaps, our whole being is united to a living Lord. And that we are not just people who live in a headspace, but we obey to our hurt because there's no hurt coming to us from our Savior. Beloved, we have to become even wiser to recognize when the Spirit of God and the providence of God conspire to give us public opportunities to obey God rather than men. You have one of those every week. You have one of those in how you teach about man's need for a Savior. Another point of application. Acts 5.29 is not possible without the gifts of our Prince and Savior. The obedience you see from these courageous men, Peter and the apostles, is because they have been given the gift of repentance, the gift of the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not bootstrap obedience. This is not the old sinful nature being wrestled to conform to an invisible Lord. Without these gifts, there would be no obedience like this in their lives and in your life. And please do not overlook what's being said here. The apostles are clearly declaring that even repentance is a gift from God, not a work of fallen men. Even the first motions in our soul to abandon our sin, to leave the old regime of the flesh and the world and the devil, those first motions of repentance to return to Christ and cling to him as Savior and Prince, those first motions are a gift, the gift of repentance. And the cleansing of the conscience from all our filthy works and all our rebellion. Oh, Peter relished the cleansing. For he denied Christ not too many weeks earlier. 
These are gifts that make men strong and tall in Jesus Christ. No wonder Psalm 1844 describes Christ this way. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. It was, of course, also a Davidic psalm as the royal authority and power and the largesse and the goodness of King David's name spread, people immediately dropped arms and obeyed him. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, in closing, I put this question to you. Are you a royal subject and servant of Jesus Christ? Are you eager for him to arrange for you opportunities where you get to declare that you must obey your heavenly prince rather than men? Do you welcome those? Or are you suppressing the fact that many of those are coming into your life right now and you are just sort of throwing a blanket over them because you don't want to see them, look at them, or hear from them. If that is you, you are missing out on the joy of your master. And you are missing out on your heavenly prince's gladness to let your obedience be a witness that Jesus is Lord. Repent of these things because he is not yet done forgiving sins. He is not yet done giving the gift of repentance even to his children who have already been born of the Spirit. He continues to give us the gift of repentance and give us the gift of forgiveness of sins. Let us pray to him. Almighty God, We confess, O Lord, that we are often the most loud on the obedience we want to give. We are often most loud on the obedience we think other men ought to give. We are often cowardly on the obedience that we neglect. Oh, Father, we pray that our whole man would be illuminated by the whole Savior, the whole Christ, that we would not be false, that we would not set up our own smoke screens, that we, Lord, everywhere would step upon the opportunity, step up and obey God rather than man and trust all the outcome to you. Lord, we thank you for the gifts of your risen son, repentance, forgiveness of sin, and the Holy Spirit. We pray that these would continue to flow into our soul, into our mind, into our will, like living water, that we would make a life of it, repenting, 
make a life of it, cleansing our conscience, confessing our sins, and make a life of it, walking in the Spirit, all to the praise, glory, and honor of our risen Prince. And may all men, may all the elect of God, men of every tribe, nation, and tongue, all sorts of men, may they all be united with us under one Lord, under one obedience, one faith, one baptism. In his name we pray, amen.